So we're talking about money this morning. Uh, we're, we're more specifically going to talk about a theology of money because, frankly, I think when we talk about money, we usually talk about the need for money as a church or some televangelist, okay? Or we talk about how we're going to spend money, but we never really start where we should start, and that's the theology of money. You see, if we're always focused on the doing, we lose sight of what's really driving it all, and, and all sorts of things can kind of get messed up. We do that in our own lives. When we begin to, to lose sight of why we're trying to be obedient, why we're trying to do some of the things we do, we begin to just feel like it's just heavy things that are weighing on us, and we, we disconnect it from God, from the center, from what's driving it all, and then it kind of loses it. There's a word for doing, and it's called orthopraxy. Orthopraxy, which is right action, um, which is different than the word orthodoxy, which is right belief, okay, um, right understanding of things. And so when we're coming to money, there's an orthodoxy, there's a theology, there's a, there's a where is God in this whole thing that we kind of have to start from. And I think because money's so funky, we always start on trying to sort out the funkiness of it. Does that make sense? Where we really need to start is at the center. And in doing that, and trying to talk about a theology of money, what we really begin to realize is that in the Old Testament, there's this principle set up, and it basically is that God gives money or resources to um, people. We'll go with geometric shapes today. Um, he gives good things to people. He bestows stuff on his creation, his family, and he blesses us this way, and those things are good. And, and we always pendulum swing to one extreme or the other. We think the thing itself is the real object of value, and we disconnect it from the giver. We, we don't realize that all good things come from God or that God is the one really sustaining us, and we begin to worship the thing itself, and we begin to put our hope and our trust in our bank account or our resources or our energy or our strength or our opportunity or even our, our giftedness, and we disconnect it from God. There's another way we can go to an, another extreme, and it's on the real monastic kind of side of it, and I love St. Francis of Assisi, but this is one of those areas where I would disagree with his order. They began to see things like money, um, sex, uh, Food is being very earthy and, and therefore less than the purity of God. And they never even wanted to touch money. They wanted to beg for food and they wanted to avoid kind of touching impure things and devote themselves just to the noble things of God. And, and you create this kind of dichotomy of what's good and what's not good. And the interesting thing is that's very far from the Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew mindset, the, the Old Testament scriptures were that all of creation is God's creation and it's good and it's there to be enjoyed, but to be enjoyed in a proper way. It's not money that's bad, it's the love of money that's bad. It's not sex that's bad, it's sex inappropriately outside of certain relationship boundaries that destroys community that's bad. Does that make sense? It's not power that's bad, it's how... Corrupt individuals can, can leverage power to hurt other people. But if they leverage that influence and that, that, that power for good, then there's something praiseworthy with it. And so the things that, that are very earthy aren't bad in and of themselves. It's our motives and it's our heart that comes in contact with them that, that either shapes it one way or another. And it's actually a very Greek idea, Greek philosophical dualistic kind of thing to separate it out and say these things of the earth are bad let's shun them and just try and be uh, about the heavenly things the spiritual things and so there's an extreme that we can go on so the interesting thing is so when we're talking about tithing God gives resources and when we tithe back a portion of those resources, we're honoring God. 
we're honoring him and we're saying we realize that, that this is not of me. I didn't create this myself. It comes from you. And that it's really you, not my stuff, that matters most. And I'm going to put that relationship first. You get your cut. Okay? Now, if I go the other way and give all of it back to God, what's wrong about that? Because I think it's a very important part. Because I think that one of the reasons people avoid giving anything back to God is they feel like the church is asking them to do something so extreme by like giving away all their worldly stuff. And, and that just seems ridiculous or nonsensical. And so it kind of shuts us down and then we just avoid it. Does that make sense? There's an extremism that kind of feels like we're going to fall off the edge of the world when the church starts talking about money. They're just going to want it all. The reality is, if we gave it all back to God in an unhealthy way, especially if you have dependents and kids and family that you need to take care of, what you're really doing is saying, I'm not understanding that what you gave me, God, is good. If I bought a meal for my kids at Red Robin, when Sarah gives me a French fry back, She's honoring me, and she's kind of thanking me, and I realize there's gratitude. Does that make sense? She gives me the whole thing back and says, Dad, I love you so much here. I'm kind of like, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want your mac and cheese. One, it looks disgusting. Um, two, I bought that for you. I, I want to feed on your joy. I want to see you happy. Now, the, the best of, the, of all of it is when you give me that french fry back and I realize this is a relational thing, okay, and that you realize it's coming from me, but I, I want you to enjoy it. And when we kind of shun all the things of the world, we begin to get that sour-faced Christian thing going where we don't realize that, that God is a Father who delights in us receiving good gifts, does that make sense? I mean, just picture Christmas like, you know, wow, that's such a cool bike. I don't want it. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So we're not talking about going off the edge of the world here with money. We're talking about something very practical that says God gives you stuff. He wants you to enjoy and have it and be mature with your money. He just doesn't want you to disconnect it from him because he's the source of Everything, all things are from, through, and to God. So we honor God with our money. Now, the idea of this in Scripture is first fruits or a tithe. I want to read you just a couple verses from the Old Testament just so that we frame it. Because what, I want, what I'm really doing here is saying, what is this thing called a tithe? There's other sides of money, hundreds of them. Okay, How do we be wise with our investments? How we you know, handle our business finances and, and use equal scales and don't cheat people. There's hundreds of things about money in Scripture. Today we're kind of just trying to frame the theology of money at the front end. Does that make sense? So I want to read you just a couple verses. Here's Leviticus 27, verse 30. And it defines a tithe. The tithe of everything from the land, whether from grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Now here's the, the fascinating phrase. It is holy to the Lord. A tenth, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is His, um, and it's actually holy. And the word holy literally means set apart. It's His. It's set apart unto Him. It's, it's special. It's not ours. The, the best picture of this in my mind, if you want to think about your money, is always look at a piece of fruit. Um, think of an apple or a cantaloupe or anything else with a lot of seeds. And you look at the seeds, that 10% at the core, it's not ours. We don't eat that. Well, whose is it? It's God's. It's what he designed in that fruit to be the thing which goes and reproduces and multiplies. Does that make sense? The other part of it, the 90%, we get to eat or we kind of get to share but that 10% is God's. It's holy. It belongs to him. And it's how he's going to multiply this thing called the church or his kingdom on earth or how he is handling his affairs and his will and all that other stuff. And this is what he's saying. It's, it's my, you just set it aside to me. So I want you to think of this. Um, 
Suppose we all um, knocked off a bank. And we're going we're gonna to divvy up the money. Okay? So we not uh, Vegas. There's more money in Vegas than in the banks. Um, suppose we knock off Vegas. And we're going to divvy up the money. If I section off something and say, here you go, first cut, what am I really saying? What, what is that action really symbolic of if I look at somebody and I say, first cut? I'm saying you're most important. Before anything else happens, I'm squaring you away. And then I'm going to do whatever else I'm going to do with the other people or, or the rest of the money, whatever. But you, I'm, I'm honoring. You're important in this. And so what God is saying in Leviticus, and we could go to tons of verses, is he's saying, look, first cut. If you're really going to honor me, then give me the first cut. The biblical phrase for that is first fruits. Again, we're dealing with orchards or we're dealing with harvest of of things from the ground, from the soil, and not necessarily coins or, or paper money. And God says, the harvest is coming in. It's interesting, um, my wife asked us yesterday, she, she, we pop popcorn, and this is the way my wife thinks. She's just like, what do you think causes that first kernel to pop? Like, what, what makes that first one kernel pop sooner than the others? You know, and I'm just like, well, I don't know, you know, and she's just like, Huh, that's intriguing, you know. And, well, in the harvest, what makes some fruit come about and ripen faster than the other? I, mean, it's, it, I don't know what makes this part of the orchard or whatever ripen faster than the other part. But what I do know is it doesn't, it's not just one night all of a sudden it's all ripe. You know what I'm talking about? It, it begins to happen and then there's a portion of the harvest that begins to ripen. And then over a month or depending on what the product is, the fruit is, the crop is, the rest of the harvest starts to turn. Does that make sense? Uh, I love pomegranates. It's a short season. In the fall, they have them at Costco. They start with palm wonderful, and they're like this big of pomegranates, and they look unbelievable. And then I know when it's about to end because all of a sudden it's like a, a different brand, and they begin to look this big. And they, don't, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? They're like, okay, it's turning. Like we've gone through the harvest now. We're on the back end. God is saying, look. The first part, the first kernel of popcorn that pops, the, the beginning of it, that's when I want you to give me my cut. Because if you really give me that cut, you're honoring me. Because you're realizing the whole thing is from me. And you're realizing that this is the most important piece because frankly, um, until you get the whole harvest in and protected, it's, it's vulnerable, isn't it? Storm could come, something else could come. Um, marauders could come, whatever. And, and he's saying, if you give this to me, you're really honoring me. And not only that, you're trusting me. It's, a je- it's the first French fry. You get, you, know, you get what I'm saying? Okay. So God says, first fruits go back to him. We're honoring him. Now I want to bring in one more concept here before we move on. Um, and that's last fruits. And he says... Can you read that? Generosity? Yeah? Kind of? Now that I told you what it is? Okay. Um, he says, so now you, you, you go out, you harvest, you get all your stuff, you bring it into the barns, the easy stuff where you, you don't have to really get on your hands and knees and you bundle it up and all that. You get that in and it's like raking pine needles. You know, you kind of do the first pass and then you look back and there's a lot of little leftovers. Does that make sense? And, and God's saying, when you get to that leftover part, don't get down on your knees and, and go for all of it. Get your eight-year-old kids out there, you know, all that stuff, and really try and get every last crumb. Just leave it. Leave it. There's no welfare in, in this culture. There's no monetary money. There's no federal government. Um, there are orphans, there are widows, and there are immigrants who are really in need. They don't have land. They don't have the capacity to bring about on that land. And leave it for them. Do it graciously. Allow them to come in and glean off your fields. And so there's kind of this idea. I don't, I don't want to talk in percentages too much today because I don't think that's it at all, okay? If we're talking percentages of money, then we're missing um, the heart. We'll get to that in just a minute. But 
what we're doing with the first fruits is we're honoring God. It's the tithe or it's the offerings. And then on the back end, with the, the last, say to, uh, so to speak, 10%, we're being generous. We're being generous. It's charity. Those are the two categories. So our theology of money is basically saying, regardless of what we bring in, we ought to so order our lives that the first 10% goes directly to God. And after we've taken care of our needs, the gleanings um, can go to helping our family members that are in trouble or the person in our small group that's in trouble or the guy down the street that you know about is in trouble, or the nonprofit ministry that you care about that's in trouble. And, and God says, pattern your money such that this is the case. Now, obviously not everyone's going to be able to pattern their money that way because there is a category of poor or needy that, that the rest of us are upholding. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying if you're in a situation in life right now that, that this is not possible. I'm not saying that... that uh, Pull it out of thin air. What I am saying, though, is that the minute I started talking about money, a lot of us in this church are so in debt that the word giving, we, we just, it misses us completely. Like, we can't even begin to comprehend that because we're in such a pit of debt. Does that make sense? And... Let me draw a different drawing, and this is, how, this is how the drawing in church talks about money usually go, and it's why I'm always skittish to talk about it. And it's, here's you, here's the church with the steeple, and here's, here's the pastor. The church needs money, the pastor's freaking out, the pressure comes for you to give money to the church. And that's oftentimes can be the driving motivation of, of the church money talk. Now, what's missing in that? What's missing in that is God. Let me put how God is missing in it in two different ways. One, the person is not being looked at holistically or as having dignity. Um, if, if we really care about each other and if we really care about people, we're not just caring about the tithes that should be going to the church or whatever, whatever, whatever. We should be caring about that person's flourishing, the health in that person's life and their family's life, which means money is a comprehensive subject, Right? It should be talked about in a whole bunch of ways so that we're equipping people on how to handle their money so that they're not in debt, so that they are in a position to be uh, in a healthy financial position to where they can be generous and they can honor God and, and all this stuff. So we've got we to gotta talk about the whole thing. Does that make sense? And that church money talk just takes one little slice out and it's basically all about give money. And... So we miss the whole person in this, which God is always about the whole person. Jesus was always banging on the leaders of Israel saying, you're missing the person here. Okay, you're reducing people down to means, not ends. And then this action right here, a pastor engaging in that action we all just know deep down inside is wrong. Um, you might not even know what Ephesians 4 says, but in your gut you know the principle, and that's that pastors are here to equip people to be able to serve God better, to have healthier relationships, to know themselves better, to, um, to flourish. The pastors are here to serve. Right? And so we can begin to really bristle at the church money talk because not only does it feel like somebody's using us and missing us in the process, but it feels like an abuse of the position of authority. 
So what we've started doing at this church a year ago, a year and a half ago, and you have an opportunity today again, is what we want the driving focus of our interaction with you on money to be, we want it to come in a 13-week class called Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Why Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University? Because it comes directly from God. No, it, it's just the best tool that we've found. It's, it's just that. It's the best tool we've found to help talk about money in a holistic way that honors people the most, that starts with all of your finances and wants you to get into a healthy position so that you can flourish. Does that make sense? nothing magical about it. It's just the best tool that we've found that's out there. So today when we collect our offering on those connection cards, you can write Dave Ramsey or Money Class or whatever. Um, and you can just turn that in. And we've got on the first Sunday of two services, which is the first Sunday of April, one of the benefits of doing two services, we're going to be able to run some classes during one of those services so that people can come to church and then also go to a class. Um, so we're going to start that the first week of April. Jim Wilkins, uh, our chair of the board, is going to do that with someone else. Uh, and then there's another Financial Peace University class that's going to start during the midweek. Uh, and we don't, I don't know which evening that's going to be yet, but we'll email you guys. We'll give you an opportunity to sign up for it. But if you just put down, you know, Financial Peace or Money Class or quit abusing me when you talk about money, you know, like I want to flourish, just whatever you want to write on there. Um, put it in the offering. We'll interact with you to get this into a dialogue that can be the healthiest it can be. Does that make sense? So you have an opportunity for that in just a minute. I want to draw two more points with the theology of money, and then I want to go to a couple of objections to what I'm saying. Okay, what the objections would be to what I'm saying. The first is this. Um... Giving to God, honoring God, drives generosity. The more we recognize what we have as God's and we honor God, the more it puts us in, an op in a position or a mindset, a frame of mind, a paradigm, where we're also going to be generous. I mentioned last week the statistics of the... the the segment that gives the most to nonprofits is also the segment that tithes regularly to church on Sundays. That it becomes a whole lifestyle of how you see your resources. The phrase becomes how you steward God's resources. And we have to, in, in understanding the theology, that when we put God at the center, we, we start kind of from the, the orthodoxy side of it, this grounds and then drives the orthopraxy, the, the action, the behavior. Does that make sense? And so what we really have to do is realize that the first thing sets up everything else. And it's why we would talk about tithing. I'm not just trying to abuse you this morning by talking about this side of it. I'm trying to talk about the whole theology of money. And it begins by honoring God. It says in Malachi this. Let's, let's look at it real quick, actually. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And at the beginning of the law, God says, look, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what I'm commanding you. This is how you're going to be obedient. Um, you're going to give me the first fruits. You're going to honor me. It's holy to me. It belongs to me. It's mine. God says to do this. Now, at the end of the Old Testament, we get to Malachi, and you get this really interesting phrase. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, um, let's just pick it up in, let's just start in verse 6. So chapter 3, verse 6 of Malachi says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. If I did change, I would raise you up, knock you down, raise you up, knock you down completely. And he's saying, no, my motives, my purposes are consistent throughout this. 
And ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. You don't obey the law. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now God is being facetious here, and he says, But you ask, how are we to return? And God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Because remember, it was holy to God. It was not yours to give back to him. It was his in the first place that you were supposed to set aside. He saw, God saw it as his. It's holy unto him. It belongs to him. And, and he says, uh, you're going to ask, how do we rob you? And, and God's answer is, in tithes and offerings, because they were mine. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not even have room enough for it. And he begins to say, because they're thinking of crops, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and in the vines of your field they will not cast out their fruit. It's all going to be there for you to have. I will bless you. Then all the nations will look at you and know that I'm blessing you. They're going to wonder, who's God? Who's God do they, you know, what God do they worship? Who is their God? That's what God says. Put your faith in me. In other words, you test me. By putting yourself out there, you put your faith in me and test me. Watch how faithful I will be. So in our language, it would be, you don't think you have enough money. You think the economy's looking bad. You think you don't have retirement. You think that there's more and more and more and more security that you need to build into your life, which will never quite be secure enough. And, and you think that you have to do that. And so you're like, I don't know, God. I can't really. 10%'s a lot. You know? And God is saying, look, test me. You put your faith in me. You honor me. You lean hard into me. Watch me give back. You have small thinking. You're only looking at the resources that are available to you. When you test me, you avail yourself of my resources that are a lot bigger than yours. I'll take care of you. You don't have a job now? Guess what? I'll give you a job. You know, you don't have enough money coming now? Guess what? Someone's going to leave you an inheritance. I know about the future more than you know. I know what I can do with the future. I will take care of you. Now, here's the real rub with the theology of money. These verses of testing God were what my grandparents lived on. Okay? Because it's a promise of God, of His faithfulness, so that the command to tithe is just not some rote obedience thing. It's a faith thing. Obedience without an understanding of why we're being obedient or, or what we can hope for is really hollow and leads to kind of a depression, right? I mean, laws without understanding the reason for the laws hollow us out. They kill our spirit. Understanding why we're being obedient because God will be faithful and honor us in return is motivating. So we don't, don't, we don't go into it just out of duty. We go into it out of desire. Tithing becomes something we're excited about. I remember my grandparents talking about tithing that way. I've never talked about tithing that way. My, I don't know that I've heard many people in my generation talk about tithing that way. Why? Because we grew up with televangelists. I'm serious. We grew up with Benny Hinn. And they use these verses to play on emotions in a form of con or manipulation. And so what begins to happen is, because of our distaste for them, we begin to have a distaste for what it is they're saying. Right? And so we begin to, my generation, have a hard time hearing verses of, give because God will bless you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one of those. And what we end up doing is we end up losing Something in Scripture. You know there's only like two places in Scripture where God says, test him? 
Want to know what one of the other ones is? That has to do with money? This is in the, in the Ten Commandments. It says, honor your father and your mother. And he's talking to adults about honoring your older father and mother. They provided for you. Now they are not able to provide for themselves. You don't just walk away, ignore that. You take care of your older father and mother. Honor your father and your mother. That, this is the, this is the, the promise, that it may go well with you. Paul talks about that. The only, the only commandment with a promise. God's not saying, if your parents deserve it, take care of them. If you like them, take care of them. You know, you know what I'm saying? He's not talking about the circumstances. He's saying, your faith is what he's going to honor. Make sense? When it comes to giving money to God, he's not saying, um, circumstances should drive it, or fashion should drive it. He's saying, look, if you in your heart trust me, give me your first french fry, love me, be in relationship with me, honor me and obey me, I always take care of that. I always can affirm that. I always can bless that. So here's two commandments where, where, where we're told, test God. And so we have to, my generation has to separate out the televangelist from Scripture. We've got to let God say what God says without always bringing in the televangelist. Right? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Now, now this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, that, that God can take care of you. And as you sow, so shall, shall you reap. And God is wanting you to go into it, not out of duty or feeling like you're squeezed into it, but out of a cheerful heart. And he's saying, so knowing that, when you trust God, when you put your faith in God, he will prove himself faithful. It's the amazing thing about trust and faith, that, that it really sets up God's trustworthiness and faithfulness almost in a derivative sense. Right? You put your faith in God, God proves that he's faithful. You trust God, God is worthy, shows himself to be worthy of that trust. If I want to know whether you can keep a secret, I got to tell you a what? And so half the time, God is sitting there going, you know what? You feel so shallow in your relationship with me. You feel so isolated. You feel so alone. You feel like I'm so distant, and I am just waiting, waiting to just bless you and show myself to you. But to get the fullness of me, you got to tell me a secret. you got to put your faith in me. you got to trust me with something so that I can show you the fullness of me because you can't talk about the fullness of God without talking about God's faithfulness or trustworthiness. And so if we really want to know God, all of God, see God in all his glory, we got to open that up by trusting him. A lot of us are going, man, if I just... When I get there in my walk with God, maybe I'll start doing those super Christian things like tithing. Or when those, I'm waiting on the emotions to really feel the right emotions. I'm just hollow right now. I'm depressed. I'm, I'm alone. I'm fatigued. And so I can't do that now. Not realizing the whole time it's doing this, which is called obedience that allows God to take and work in our life, speak to us and move with us and interact with us in ways that he can't do when we're not being obedient. There's a theology of money that we have to get into. I want to, we got to quickly move along. Let me just read this quote to you. Our purpose or the purpose of tithing is to, to secure not the tithe but the tither. Not the gift, but the giver. Not the possession, but the possessor. Not your money, but you for God. Objection number one. 
tithing was abolished as a part of the Old Testament. Objection number one. Tithing, this thing I'm talking about, was abolished as a part of the Old Testament, not a part of the New. Now, I read the whole Bible through a couple times over in the first year, two years of being a Christian. Lost all my friends, um, sitting in a fraternity house in Clemson, um, having to stay awake till two in the morning because that's when the noise would, would and I read nonstop for two years while I was at Clemson. Then I went to seminary. It took 10 years of being a Christian before I ever heard someone say the tithe was abolished with the Old Testament. You can read the Bible 50 times over and never are you going to walk away going, oh, now that Jesus died, God doesn't want us to give anything back to him or honor him or, or give our resources to the community. Or It's the most absurd objection, but I hear it all the time. It is the most absurd objection to me. It's never one that someone's going to read the Bible and just come up with on their own. It's so nitpicky of an argument, too. It's, well, tithing was under the Mosaic law, and Jesus replaced Moses, it says in Hebrew. And, and then the response is even finer. Well, technically, Abraham tithed first, and that was before the law, so tithing must predate the it's all gobbledygook to me. It's, it's ridiculous. Here's the thing about the law is the law is law saying be pure, don't hurt, give, honor. I mean, that's at the heart of most of the specifics, right? Is there's a bigger picture that's going on with all laws? You know that, right? You know, and... and what, what's a law? I don't know. Sabbath? Obey the Sabbath? Is it two B's? One B? Two B's? Sabbath? Um. <laughs> Look, when the law got superseded, being pure didn't go away. Not hurting other people didn't go away. Giving honor, I mean... The things that God was really after with in the law don't go away. It's, it's just absurd. So the law is abrogated or, or replaced by grace, which is just a better reason for doing these things. Right? You don't have to. You get to. You don't have to feel distant from God, yet you're obeying Him anyways. You get to feel the most intimate of all relationships with God so that given the French fry to God has such an intimate quality to it that you're going to feed on that more than you're going to feed on whatever TV show or, or hobby that you've conjured up. Grace becomes the motivator. What was externally compelled gets replaced by internal motivations, right? Jesus walked into the, the temple and he sees a woman give her two coins and he says, that is true giving. She was putting it into the offering basket. And he says, that's true giving. Why? Because of her heart. He didn't say, what a foolish woman. Doesn't she know that the tithes are going to be abolished in like a week? Hold on to your two coins till after I die. Then you don't have to give them. He didn't say, look, churches abuse gifts. Churches abuse gifts. They spend it on staff instead of the poor. So this woman just became poor because she gave all she had. It would have been better if she had kept it because the whole point of the offerings anyways is for the poor. He didn't say that either. He looked at her heart and honored. And by the way, just inside, because it'll help us shorten time if I just throw it in here. Do you know that the first person that created paid staff ever, you know who that person was? God. Right with the formation of the nation of Israel, he set aside Levites. And he said, these are my paid church staff. They work, their day-to-day work is at the house of gathering, the tent of gathering. And the tithes, do you, do you want to know what it says in Leviticus? This is, most people don't realize this. You know how we always talk about the orphans, the widow, and the alien? In Leviticus it says, the Levite, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. Now, can that be abused? Absolutely. Can someone make the argument that 
staff or pastors should never touch money. You can't make it biblically. You can't even make it from just, hey, it was part of the Old Testament, not a part of the New, because Paul says in Timothy, the elders or pastors or shepherds who direct the affairs of the church, they work at the house of gathering. The ones that do that well are worthy of a double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I expect someone to buy me lunch today. I'm, I'm joking. I shouldn't even say it. For Scripture says, look, the, those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of an honor. The Scripture says this, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. There's people that say there should not be anyone getting paid on staff because there's poor people in the community. And I say if we give all the money to poor people in the community, we've just robbed Peter to pay Paul. Because you tell me whether it's Justin or Brandon or Kip or whoever's going to, you know what I'm saying? Who do, you, who do you want me not to pay because we're just going to create, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul. Now, again, it can get out of hand, but let's be honest about biblical discussions of money. And this whole idea of the Old Testament, you got Paul talking in the New Testament about tithes and offering. You got Jesus watching the tithes and offering. He went up to the Pharisees who were talking about tithes and he chastised them. You guys remember this story? They're like the best tithers in the world. They tithe off of their crumbs. Like here's 10% of a crumb. Everything was 10%. But they were neglecting the generosity part. So it was all honor of God. No generosity. Jesus says, man, you should have done this and done this. He didn't say you're giving it to the wrong place. He says your heart's not in the right place. So objection number one, um, tithing went away with the Old Testament. The reality is it's just a better reason to tithe in the New Testament. Not only that, it's like if we really understand the theology of money and that one of the ways that God is going to take care of us in terms of resources is by our generosity, we'd be injuring ourselves, right, by, by finding some excuse not to be generous. Proverbs, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs 11, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. If we really understand the theology, even if someone told us and we believed it, that, that it went away with the Old Testament, we would still, out of self-interest, want to give our money to God. Right? Right? I mean, I can't see any faces. Right? I mean, is that not? No, I mean, I'm serious. The Bible says, test me in this. You're going to see a bigger slice of God if you test him by putting your faith in him, telling him secrets and handing him french fries. And, and, and so no matter what someone says to you that's nonsensical, you'd go, I cannot not give french fries to my dad. I cannot not tell secrets to my best friend. I have to give the most important to that person because I want the relationship. It's not just about finding excuses to get out of obedience. I want the relationship. I want grace. Objection number two, we'll skip number three, but number two is I don't trust how churches spend money. I agree with you. Okay? That's all. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. I, I, I think that there's two things at play here. There's the faithfulness of the tither, and there's the faithfulness of the, the leaders, which we would typically call an elder board. The responsibility of how the money gets spent at a church is the responsibility of an elder board, correct? My, my kids or my friends or my parents, they're not responsible for how I spend my, my money. I'm the head of my house in some sense, like I'm responsible. And the elders in some sense are over the church. They're put there because supposedly they've demonstrated in their own lives an ability to lead well. And there's a multiplicity of them so that they balance and it's the balance of powers. And uh, it's their responsibility. And, and that's a weighty responsibility. It's the responsibility of the giver or the tither to honor God and, and to have their heart in the right place and to be cheerful. 
Now, I think if there's cause for not trusting the elders, biblically speaking, you would need to go to those elders and say, I have doubts, please help, let's dialogue. Because in good faith, you're saying these are rational men, let's talk about it because chances are it'll resolve my question or we can really dialogue about something meaningful here. Does that make sense? That's the biblical way to handle it if you don't trust this specific group of elders. I think part of choosing a church, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some measure of trust for this church or see the fruit coming about from the ministries of this church. And so in some sense, you begin to trust your elders and trust God and say, my part of this is my generosity and my honoring God with my tithe. And I got to have enough faith that God is sovereign over this church, over those elders, over this community, that even though nobody can act perfectly, um, it's all going to work itself out. But do you not trust churches to the point where you just will not give money to churches? Something is malfunctioning with the way God designed his family on earth to work. Does that make sense? That's like saying I'm not going to go into friendships because people have always let me down. So I don't trust people, so I'm going to have no friendships. Absolutely people let you down. Absolutely elder boards let you down. Absolutely churches let you down. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You still have to be mature work through differences and try and rebuild trust or have trust or maintain trust in this sense so that we can be in community. Does that make sense? But I, I, I appreciate the heart of that criticism because I have the same thing. It's one of the reasons we're not in a, a $30 million building program right now because I would have a hard time justifying that. So I, 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 I'm with you in that objection, but I don't think that objection speaks to not tithing. I, I think it speaks to elder boards needing to make sure they're being responsible with God's money, stewarding it well. Thirdly, objection, I prefer to designate my tithes and offerings. Partly because I don't trust churches, I prefer to take my 10% and to what I call spend it. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit to that guy. I have a relationship with that guy. I like this nonprofit. Ooh, this is in trouble. And that, I liked that. That was a good month. I felt like I was able to balance. It's like a portfolio. I mean, it was a nice balanced portfolio, and that's how I give my 10%. <laughs> I don't think that's a tithe either. I don't have time to go into it all the way. You can go to my blog. You can go to the church's Facebook page. You can go to the Vimeo page for Redux and look at a 10-minute discussion of this from last Sunday. But what I think is really going on here because my generation does this. I do this. I struggle with this a lot. I, have, I really succumb a lot or have in the past to this temptation of spending my tithe. And what I'm really doing, and, and I think my generation does with this, is we conflate these two categories. We take our tithe money and we put it in our hands in our generosity category and we take that money and we we do the generosity thing with that money does that make sense instead of having this goes to god and it's the first cut and and i give it to him i'm trusting him to multiply it i'm, I'm trusting his systems and his structures and his mechanisms but the the real thing in my heart is just saying it's yours god it's not mine to do with it's yours um we're, we're taking that money and going over to this section where it really is about our generosity, seeing needs, responding to needs, trying to help people, and acting out of that position of doing our best with our wisdom and our judgment to make things healthy in the community out here. And I think we're taking the last, the first fruits, and we're, we're behaving in the last fruits category, and I call it spending your tithe. I think it's a real thing. I think I struggle with it. I think my generation struggles with it. When I get around older generations, they seem to have more of a discipline or a habit pattern of separating those two categories out. But my whole thing with objection number three is when we get motives involved, when we get emotions involved, when we get choice involved, we're really becoming the distributor of that money. Um, and that's this category over here. And we conflate these two things into one. And again, it would take a lot longer to really defend that and to unpack it, but I, I think if you want to go to my blog, if you want to go to Redux, if you want to stay for Redux today, you can argue with me on it. You can argue with me on it.
Um, why do Christians not tithe? Why do we not tithe? It's just not natural. It is, I mean, it's just not natural, right? That's why. And I think I would say because we don't understand the gospel, we don't really understand grace. It's, the gospel is all about grace. If we don't understand grace, then we don't understand the gospel. And why do we not understand grace? Because we lack gratitude. Um, I'm going to make an executive decision and just tell you a story real quick. And uh, hopefully you can hang in there with me. Marcel was here a couple weeks ago for uh, the Justice Conference. Marcel's our pastor friend from Congo. When I picked him up at the airport, Esther was with me. Esther's my daughter, my second. She asked Marcel if she could bring him to school. <laughs> Show and tell, you know. Um, Marcel was gracious enough to say yes. And so I w- brought Marcel the following week after the Justice Conference to Esther's school. They all sat on the carpet and they were asking Marcel questions. And it was really interesting how they were asking questions. They were being very orderly. You know, the teacher was keeping tight control one question at a time. One kid asked a question, though, and all hell broke loose. Everybody just jumped on top of it, on top of it. And the question was this, do you have Xbox? Because up until then, it was like, what do you eat? What's the weather like, you know? And then a kid asked Xbox, you know, do you have Xbox? And then everybody started chiming in, do you have Wii? Do you have Wii Fit? I don't know. I didn't know kids played Wii Fit, but it's like, um, do you have Nintendo? Do you have PlayStation? They all just went crazy. And, and Marcel looks at me like lost, and I just said, just say no. Marcel, just say no. So he looks back at him and very graciously says, no, my brothers and sisters, no, we do not have. And I was leaning against this wall, and this was going on in front of me, kids here, Marcel here, and then it went on. And I, my heart was so broken, okay? Because what Marcel doesn't know was that through most of the 2000s, what drove the consumer need for tungsten, tantalum, and tin, which predominantly exists in eastern Congo where his home is, to the degree that all the rebel groups operating in those jungles saw the mines as the most lucrative way to take control and then turn for basically blood money, that he would go into these areas and these regions pray with his family and and basically say, God, my life is yours. His family would do it with him. He would go drive up into these areas. He said the roads became the woods to get to to the villages near the mines. The roads became the woods. Nobody would go there. He prays with his family, and they fast and pray the whole time he's gone because he's literally giving his life away for these vulnerable people. And what Marcel doesn't understand is what these kids are asking him about all these play games is the very thing that has wreaked such havoc on his countrymen, caused the rape of so many women, the death of so many individuals. Um, the pain and the heartache, and even in his own family, as they seek to give their lives away to restore what has been so broken. And here's these kids, they have no idea. He has no idea, and I'm, I'm seeing both sides of this, and it killed me. Killed me. And then I, my wife had come in and sat there, and we got out, and she said, um, for, for a different reason, I, I started trying to tell her about this, and she said, Ken, I almost vomited. Why? She goes, well, they asked Marcel, what are the dress-up clothes like? And Marcel says, oh, brothers and sisters, they only have one cloth, one cloth set of clothes. Because my, my countrymen, they, have, they suffer very much. And the kids went, ooh, Gross! Oh. That was their response to the word suffer in holes and clothes. And, and my wife about vomited. And she said, we need to, to circle our kids up. I love what Linda's doing with Mission Kids. If you don't know what she's doing, absolutely go give 20 hours a week to helping Linda with that program. Our kids don't understand gratitude. Not their fault. Not bad kids. It's the context they have no context. And so they don't understand. They don't understand. So they have no gratitude. And it was such a clear picture to me to, to what a lack of gratitude and perspective looks like watching these American kids in Marcel. And I, I really have thought long and hard for the last month about gratitude 
we are type A Americans and we are so connected to our lack and being driven by what we yet don't have or what we have not yet accomplished in our lack drives us and we have such a deficiency when it comes to appreciating what we do have. And in all of that, we lose gratitude and we lose perspective. And when we lose gratitude and we lose perspective, we don't really understand grace and how amazing grace is. And when we don't understand grace and what is afforded to us by grace and this, this offer of this relationship with God, the, the offer of this unity and intimacy that we don't naturally of, of ourselves have a claim to, when we don't understand grace, then we don't understand the gospel. And if we don't understand the gospel, then we don't understand theology. And if we don't understand theology with something so, so fundamental as our relationship with God, then how in the world are we going to have a theology of money? And so why do we not tithe in America? Why do we not give? Because we don't have gratitude. Martin Luther said this, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. And I would say, you could say it's just one conversion, conversion of the heart. And a true internal understanding of grace and what is really going on with the gospel. What drives our giving? This is the last thing. And then uh, Paul Wright's going to come out and lead us in a song. But what drives giving? It shouldn't be the budget. Oh, the church needs money. Let me give. Or, oh, you know what? The church has money. Let me not give. It shouldn't be what's fashionable. It shouldn't be mixed motives. It shouldn't be the economy and, and how things feel out there. What should drive money is our theology, our understanding of God, and setting apart to God what is God's and beginning there with God at the center. What should drive giving is the size of our God. That's the same thing that should drive our purity, same thing that should drive our ability to forgive one another or act honorably or overlook an offense. It's all coming from the same place. It's the size of our God and how that stirs us and changes us and motivates us and moves us and it infects our desires and the desire to be godly in all facets of life is so much greater and stronger of a joy and a pleasure and a desire that the other little things, the pleasures of life, the hedonistic things, they don't compare. That's cotton candy and we don't want it anymore because we're feeding on this, this relationship with God that is so much deeper and stronger. And if you don't have that this morning, I don't want your money. I want you to understand grace. I don't want you as a means to an end. I care about you as an end, that there's a God who is so big, he will blow your mind if you just pursue him. So when we give money, it's to honor God. When we give money, it's an opportunity to pray because we're with God and we're giving him a French fire and it's, it's relationship and that's prayer and it's thanks. And when we're giving money to God, it's also faith. And we're saying, God, you're going to sustain me. It's not myself. I want it to be in the context of this relationship where you're being faithful, not just I'm so smart enough to put myself in such a secure position. I've built such strong towers for myself that I don't need you, the strong tower. God is never going to be mad at us for giving. Just like that woman with her two coins. God is never going to look at our hearts and be displeased with us. And God said, like we read earlier, that he never changes. And so he will always respond to our faith in a faithful way. Let's pray. Father, I love this church. I love what they did last week. I love their faith. I love these people, these individuals, these men, these women, these teenagers, these kids. I love this church. I love what you're doing with this church. I love how you're knitting us together. I love how there's a fabric here. I love how there's sacrifice and cheerful spirits and good motives. I just love what you're doing with this church. And I pray that you would just bless these people who are trusting you. 
I, I pray that even if it takes a while and even if it's hard, that you would sustain them, you would be faithful, and that you would show them that even when they are weak, you are strong. And sometimes in the greatest weakest weakness, uh, you have your greatest strength. And I, I just pray you would bring about that degree of, of intimacy. Let the fire of this church burn bright. Let the light of this church burn bright. Let the people of this church burn bright. Let this thing truly honor you. May we give you glory in Christ's name.